Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Locked out of the housing market? Why not consider a canal barge? HMRC trains its crosshairs on personal service companies. And is it time for a contrarian move into cryptocurrencies? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm James Pickford, Deputy Editor of FT Money, and I'll be giving you this week's money news in downloadable form. Canal barges and houseboats might be a great thing for a holiday, but are they really a practical alternative to a bricks-and-mortar home? Well, in expensive property markets like London, it seems more people are choosing to take to the water as they find themselves unable to afford a conventional property. Kate Beerley, a writer for FD Money, has been investigating the finances of boat living and she's here to tell us what she found. Kate, this is a pretty radical alternative to buying bricks and mortar. Why are more people doing it? Um, Well, essentially, it's much cheaper to buy a canal boat than it is to buy a first home and can be substantially cheaper than renting, too, particularly in places like London. So when you consider the average house price of a first home hit a record high last year of just under 300,000 and far higher in London, you can actually buy a canal boat from as little as 10,000 for maybe quite a dilapidated one, but 30000 for a pretty reasonable narrow boat. Um, and then that's something that you own. And then when you're living on the boat, you actually don't pay council tax, you don't pay utility bills, for things like water, electricity and gas. All you pay are the cost of a licence to use England's waterways. Um, and then you pay insurance. And people cite kind of costs of around £50 a month for all of their general needs. And that's because your boat is powering everything um, and driving your electricity. Very good. And and. Can you get a mortgage on these things? Is, is that is it the normal conventional way of financing them? Well, you can't get a mortgage from a traditional lender for a boat, but there are specialist marine finance lenders who will give you a mortgage. Uh, so that's people like Pegasus Finance or Arkle Finance. Uh, now, Pegasus offers loans of between 5000 up to $2 million and interest rates are at 5.9% APR. Um, that rate could be quite a bit higher, more like 7%, and that would mean that if you took out a £30,000 loan to buy a boat spread over four years, you'd be paying £730 a month. And people also generally take out personal loans to, to fund boat purchases. Yes. So, I mean, one of the things I've always heard about boats is that the problem is not necessarily the boat, it's finding a mooring for it. And is that a particular problem in London? Well, most people are continuous cruises, which means that uh, you pay less. You're not paying for a residential permanent mooring, but you do have to move on every two weeks. Um, But space is actually getting really tight, particularly in London. According to the uh, Canals and River Trust, there's been a 195% increase in boats without home moorings licensed on the canals in London. And that's really putting pressure on services on 
the canal itself. One person I spoke to said mooring in London now is a bit like parallel parking. It's getting <laughs> really busy. Um, and then if you do want a residential mooring, that's you know hard to find. They're few and far between, and it's far more expensive. If you're buying a boat with a residential mooring attached, you're, you're more likely to pay kind of double the cost of a boat um, and potentially the cost of just buying a small flat in London. So it gets far less economical. Mm. And uh, the, the, you've talked about the initial costs uh, and the cost of financing. There are, however, other costs involved, aren't there? Yeah, and those can be significant, constant and unpredictable. Boats tend to be very expensive in terms of the constant maintenance that you have to do on them. There are things like blacking the hull, which is the most kind of consistent cost, where you have to keep pulling the boat out of the water every three to five years and and re-blacking the hull so it's not going to kind of rust or sink. Um, but there are numerous other things to do with bilge pumps, engines, you know, a whole kind of world that the people living on land are unaware of. Um, somebody said they'd paid £1,500 just in maintenance alone in the past year, and those costs vary really widely. Mm. Now, you spoke to lots of people who've done this. It, was it all plain sailing? Forgive the uh, <laughs> yeah. pun. Uh, no, big big range of experience. So some people say it's, it's a really lovely way to live. It, it's certainly it's quite kind of an offbeat way of living. It's a great atmosphere on the canals. And in summer, it's obviously fantastic. You can lie out on the roof and have a beer or whatever. But one person talked about their experience of being infested with river rats, oh. which sounded deeply unpleasant. <laughs> and uh, there are also things like, you know, you've got to take out your portable toilet and empty that at points along the canal. One person said recently they'd had a two and a half hour round trip dragging a toilet oh. down the towpath. So, you know, it can be a great way to live but it is uh there are certainly downsides yes well thanks kate um you can read more about boat living uh in kate's uh, feature in this weekend's ft money now if you're a contractor perhaps an it specialist or a freelance consultant you may have been giving some more thought recently to the way in which you're paid particularly if you've set yourself up through what's called a personal service company That is because HMRC has been cracking down on what it regards as tax avoidance by companies and individuals using this arrangement. Paul Lewis, a freelance financial journalist and presenter of BBC Radio 4's Moneybox, has been looking closely at the issue in recent months and is on the line to talk to us about it. Paul, thanks for joining us. Hi, Jane. Can you explain how these contracted tax arrangements generally work and and why HMRC doesn't like them? Well, they work... Relatively simply, if you're taken on as an IT contractor or indeed at the BBC for many presenting jobs, the, 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 the engager, as they're called, um, to use, avoid using the term employer, the engager will say, we want to take you on through a personal service company. Now, at its simplest, this could mean that um, someone called Mike Hayes might uh, start a company called Mike Hayes Limited. So instead of employing Mike as an employee, the firm engages him through his company, MHL, um, and it pays the fees to that company gross without any tax deducted, any national insurance, and then it's up to Mike to make sure that he pays the right tax. And what's happening in the public sector at the moment is that since last April, uh, if that engagement is misclassified, so in fact HMRC decides Mike is really an employee or a worker, then it is the engager, not him, who has to pay the tax. The result is that many public sector employers, including the BBC and the NHS, are saying to people, well, hang on, we want to 
change the arrangements with you because we don't think you are a freelance anymore. We want you to be either on the staff or certainly we want to take off the PAYE before we pay you. And so what uh, is the result? What are the potential penalties for individuals who have personal service companies and who HMRC has, has, has um, targeted in this way? Well, the tax savings initially can be very great. And HMRC, of course, wants that money back. Uh, the, the main tax saving is often by the engager who isn't playing employers' national insurance, which is 13.8% of people's pay. So that's a big chunk. That can easily be thousands of pounds a year. The individual can also save money by paying themselves in dividends rather than as um, wages through their, their personal service company. So both sides can save money, though the big savings now are for the engager. And if HMRC decides that you've got your status wrong, then it will come after you for the um, the unpaid tax, the unpaid national insurance that it thinks you should have paid. And indeed, there are some people in court uh, at the end of April uh, with, with bills of hundreds of thousands of pounds because HMRC thinks they've been misclassified as uh, self-employed or freelance rather than employed. But it ought to be possible, surely, to be a contractor and to be engaged by a company via a personal service company and not to make use of all the tax breaks it offers. I mean, I suppose my question is, does HMRC believe that everyone with a personal service company is fair game? Or does the question of avoidance only arise depending on the particular circumstances of a person's contract? I think HMRC does see them all as fair game at the moment. But you're quite right that if you if you pay yourself through your personal service company a wage and that attracts tax and national insurance deductions as if you were employed by anyone else, then the difference between the two is far, far less. It, it's never quite zero, but it is far less. And there are people who do exactly that. They are contractors, but they employ themselves literally through their company and pay the full tax and national insurance, both employees and employers, on the fees they get. So some people do do that. But many accountants, and most of the people involved know very little about tax or um, that kind of thing, most of them employ accountants, and the accountant, accountants say that's their job after all. Well, do you realise you can actually end up paying a lot less tax if you do it this way? And so this is HMRC's concern, that there are people who really should be employees, should be paying full tax and national insurance, and are not. I have to say, when I've talked to one of the organisations that helps contractors, uh, Dave Chaplin from contractorcalculator.co.uk, he says that the savings are actually very small because if you're a contractor, you get paid a lot more than if you're an employee. So, in fact, he thinks that uh, it can even be better for HMRC if people are paid as contractors because the overall tax they pay through corporation tax and, and their own income tax is more. That's a matter of contention, and HRC don't accept his figures. But it is the point of view of many contractors that really they don't benefit from it. It's forced on them by the engager, and they really like a, a slightly more sensible arrangement. And do we expect this arrangement to disappear under pressure, under this pressure from HMRC? Uh, well, they're trying to make it disappear in the public sector by moving the liability towards the engager. The Treasury certainly wants to extend that to the private sector. 
And I have heard from people involved in discussions that that could even be as soon as next April, April 2019. And if it did that, if it moved the liability, then I think a lot of the firms that currently contract people would suddenly think, well, gosh, if I'm going to be liable, I'm going to take the tax off them up front. Thank you very much. And that will make the whole area much more difficult for people. And I think it will make a lot of people move out of the sector and possibly move out of the country because it will be a, a very onerous change for contractors who are used to deducting their expenses, being free to take work or not, um, and are quite happy to pay uh, pay themselves, if you like, when they're sick uh, or on holiday. So I think it will be a huge disruption. But the Treasury seems fairly set on doing it because it believes it will raise a lot more money. Thanks very much there to Paul Lewis. You can read more about tax contractors in his column in this weekend's FT Money. Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum hit the headlines last year in a big way as their prices soared to record levels. It was a knuckle-biting experience for crypto holders, though, as these assets lost much of their value this year amid huge swings in price. Having ignored the whole thing in 2017, David Stevenson, who writes FT Money's Adventurous Investor column, decided to dabble earlier this year, but invested just as the bottom fell out of the market. David, I fear you were a bit late to the party. <laughs> what, what, what was it? Tell us, tell us what it was you bought and, and what actually happened. Well, I, I bought um, an exchange-traded note, like a bit like an exchange-traded fund, but it invests in things uh, that are more illiquid, like cryptocurrencies. Um, and um, it was an Ethereum tracker, or technically, I suppose, an Ether tracker. Um, so it, it, it tracked the price of Ethereum. Now, the backdrop to this is that about two or three years ago, my 16-year-old son, who was 13-year-old at the time, said, Dad, you should invest in Bitcoin. It's a really good idea. And I think it would do really well. And I just said, oh, don't worry, son, that will never do well. <laughs> and then at Christmas time, he sort of took me aside and just said, look at this chart, Dad. Yeah, look what's happened. It's just like, shut up, son. Um, and um, I thought, well, you know what? I may as well learn to understand how these things and how to access them in a kind of accessible way. Um, so I thought I'd just do a bit of a punt and put 500 quid on a Ethereum tracker and then promptly went down. In fact, I think it's pretty much gone down every day since I bought it, which is any sign, <laughs> say a sign, run away as fast as you can. So, well, I'm sorry for your loss. Yes, thank but, you uh, but I, There goes his Christmas the, present. <laughs> but I think the broader point you're making is that people can now invest in alternatives to holding these cryptocurrencies yes. directly. Yes. C can you tell us yeah. how these so, work in different forms? So, I mean, one of the reasons why I didn't really do it when my son first mentioned it was as I did think well that's interesting son you know that kind of stuff but then I looked at when did all this wallet stuff and all that kind of stuff and and I was worried I leave stuff around everywhere I'd lose the little you know this the, is the, wallets with the, the wallets required when the, you when, when you invest in letters and everything yes it's the they effectively hold your uh, what was almost like a kind of email address expressed as a kind of public and private key yeah it, it, that's what the reality with it is um, I was terrified I'd lose it or somebody some I don't know Russian hacker gang would nick it or something and it just all seemed rather complicated and and in fact, the, the, the more serious point is, is that the, the, the relatively straightforward ways that you access it as an investment, it was more a transaction-based thing, which of course it is. It is, it is originally money. And, it, and a lot of the things were designed for transactions to buy stuff. But if you weren't locked into that monetary economy, uh, you had a wallet and you were you know, willing to hold and trade it on, a, on an exchange or whatever it is, it was quite difficult to access it as an investment. 
And that's the important distinction, um, which is it, this all started off as transactions, as money, yeah. and has ended up mysteriously turning into a value proposition, an investment proposition. Um, and therefore, you've seen a whole bunch of structures emerge, like ETNs and ETFs, that allow you to access this whole digital cryptocurrency via an investment structure. I mean, you've given me a very good sense of, of why people might not prefer to hold the, <laughs> the currencies directly. List, yeah. But are these um, sort of arm's length options? Are they subject to the same sorts of volatility? Yes. And are they? Yes. And are they? Uh, do they cost more because yes, they yes, have higher yes, fees? Absolutely. So there's no getting around the fact that if you find a investment structure in this case that is more client friendly more friendly to the kind of technophobes out there someone's going to charge you for it <laughs> you know that's just the way it works because you're going to they're going to take this 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 underlying put it in a structure sell it in the product and they're going to charge you for it so the etns for instance are, are much more expensive than your classic etf because they have lots of complicated in un, underlying instruments digital currencies so um and and you certainly don't get away from the volatility because by and large for instance with an etn you're tracking it so they'll they will not quite one for one but they'll be tracking the volatility of these currencies and these currencies have been quite volatile james <laughs> um volatility largely one direction i might point out <laughs> and and actually if you look at it it's a classic negative momentum trade at the moment um which is just a you know a lot of technical analysts use things like 20 and 200 day moving averages and when it moves below them it's a death cross and it is in a death cross territory i these prices look dreadful they look like they might be heading even lower which arguably i suppose the contrarian in me goes well maybe now's the time to to, to buy them or in my case just to keep holding them because they might be worth something a little bit more than they they yes. were. I mean, one of the things that people do talk about is this huge energy consumption yes. of cryptocurrency yeah. transactions. Yes. You know. But do these alternatives, um, do no. they contribute to that? Yes, or they do. do. They... They, they do. There's no getting around the fact that if you're a more kind of green conscious investor like I am, I'm more interested in green investing than sustainable investing. These are, these are fairly catastrophic. You know, if, <laughs> if you were a Martian looking down at the earth and you're thinking, what? clever way can they come up with with using even more energy for an ultimately pointless exercise you'd probably be hard pushed them to come up with cryptocurrency kind of you know it's like a bunch of machines proving a puzzle and verifying transactions and they use the electricity equivalent of iceland or 8.15 million american households what craziness is this but it will change no doubt and that people will come up would come up with clever technologies that cut down the energy consumption so yeah i mean green wise it's a disaster yeah now <laughs> We've named your column "Adventurous Investor" for, mm. for some years, but you know, for the good reason Nearly that you're prepared, you're prepared to try things <laughs> that, that the rest of us might uh, blanch at, avoid entirely. <laughs> what sort of health warning would you attach to these types of investments? Well, you know what? I mean, I mean, reality they. You know, they are the sum of all our expectations. And the, the, the health warning I'd add on to this is that when the sum of all our expectations is that it goes down in price, yeah, then eventually the, it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy and people will just keep withdrawing. And, and these cryptocurrencies only really work while there's a constant flow of people, new people. <laughs> if I were a fraudster, I'd say marks. But, <laughs> but investors coming in keeps the flow of things coming in. I, I genuinely think, though, all, all joking aside, that... A, I think they, they will probably bottom out. The prices will bottom out. And I suspect well, maybe we're not that far away because there's a hardcore of people who still believe in it. Still, And actually, in the developing world, it may, I think it makes a lot more sense if we can you know, make it much less frictionless and much more easy to use. Um, and I do think at some point you do turn around and go, well, these are quite an interesting investment. Uh, I can't entirely say that I'm probably a point to saying that now. 
Um, but I do think so. That, that my I suppose my one thing I'd watch out for is I do think there's something genuinely interesting about blockchain. Yeah, I do think there's some genuine interest about this idea. That's the technology that un- or the principle that underlies. Yes, and, and it's all about verifying your transaction and a kind of distributed ledger they call it mm-hmm. a distributed electronic ledgers uh, and there is something genuinely revolutionary we haven't quite seen any enormously practical implications for that yet but i think there is something quite revolutionary about that idea um and, and in fact one of the most radical ideas i've seen from an outfit called cross-border capital did lots of hedge funds is they think that if central banks link that together with e-money and they had a distributed ledger that the central banks run with e-money you might even do away with high street banks altogether hooray um so you know there's some quite radical implications that emerge out the back end of blockchain, which is the thing that powers Bitcoin, mm. and there's equivalents in, in Ethereum. Uh, and, and actually, that's where you're beginning to see people doing the picks and shovels argument. So they're fund managers setting up funds, and they invest in the, the businesses that are going to power this kind of new digital money revolution. And I think there is something in there. I don't think it's going to go away. It's an idea whose time has come. So there may be more uh, you know, crypto-related opportunities to come. Mm. Thank you very much there to David Stevenson, FT Money's adventurous investor. You can read more about the development of crypto-related investments in his column this weekend. That's all from the FT Money Show this week. If you've got a story you'd like the FT Money team to follow up or a question to pose to our team of financial experts, get in touch. Email us money at ft.com, tweet us at FT Money, or comment on our articles online at ft.com slash money. We'll be back next Thursday at the usual time. Goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. shopify.com work.